Today was played by a very talented duo called the Cocktail Hour Band. Last Saturday, the Worcester Talking Newspaper volunteers were all invited here to Colin Chance House to celebrate the new year. And the Cocktail Hour Band entertained us, and very good they were too. You didn't come to the cocktail, did you know about it? Um, yeah, I'm talking to Alan, by the way. I'm not quite sure whether I did know that. <laughs> well, you should have come anyway, yes. It was very good. Um, yeah, we had an excellent buffet, and we had a drink, or two, perhaps. <laughs> and everyone enjoyed themselves. So thanks again to everyone who helped put such an enjoyable bash together. OK, welcome to our listeners to what is the first talking magazine this year. I'd like once again to thank the kind people behind the scenes here who help those little talking sticks you listen to wing their way safely to your doors. And they are Janet Weaver, Carol Hartle, and not to be forgotten, Kay Hudman. Good. That done, out of the way. With me tonight is... Alan. And... Margaret. And sadly, Brian... Um, couldn't make it tonight. He's got a bit of a problem with his eyes, apparently. So that's sad. And trying to, trying not to look at me at the moment in his cupboard <laughs> is Duncan Wynn. The reason he's not looking at me at this very minute, because last time, some of you might remember, I asked him to come out here and introduce himself. But I don't think we do that tonight. Do you think we should do that tonight? Do you think no, no. he doesn't? No, he's no, he's shaking his head, desperately shaking his head. <laughs> so we'll give him a break. <clears throat> so before we get going with tonight's stories, I'm going to have a look at uh, some of the things that uh, happened this year, and we'll try to do it in the form of a bit of a question and answer. Um, I'm going to ask. I'll give you a brief details about one of the stories that hit the news this, this year and I'm going to ask you to think of the answers while I also ask the two people sitting here with me to see if they can get them as well. So I shall just desperately try to find that bit of paper. Right, here we are. These are events of the year. Uh, what prodigious achievement did the machine Solar Impulse 2 complete in July? Haven't got a clue. Nor me. Really? No, okay. sorry. Uh, it, it became the first solar-powered aeroplane to circumnavigate the globe. Ah. Do you remember it now? 
Yes, I do. Yeah, two people, I believe, sat in it. Mm. Very clever thing. Right, number two. In September, fans of the Archers discovered that Helen uh, Titchener was not not guilty of her husband's attempt attempted murder. But what was unique about that program? You don't listen to the Archers, apparently. Uh, no, I don't listen to the Archers. No, I don't no. either, but uh, apparently... Sorry, yes, go on. On occasion I listen, but not regularly. No, apparently it was the first hour-long episode. Oh, right. So we're not doing very well here at the moment. <laughs> but another well-known story from uh, last year was... Make it well-known. It is well-known. <laughs> as soon as I give you the answer, you'll know it. <laughs> Right, known as the master, 77-year-old Brian Reader was jailed for over six years for his part as the ringleader in what astonishing crime? Probably the Brinksmat. No. No, no it's this year. Last oh, year, I should say. Oh, last year, I beg your yeah, 2016. Mm-hmm. Is that funny enough? That was last year. Yeah, yes. yeah. <laughs> just about getting used to that. <laughs> I, I give up on that one. No, I do. No, no. Right, it was the Hatton Garden jewellery oh. theft. Oh. Yeah, isn't it funny oh, yeah. how you always... <laughs> oh, dear. Right, London mayoral candidate Zach Goldsmith declared he loved almost everything about Bollywood. But what did he say his favourite Bollywood film was? Far too difficult, this quiz. No, it's not. This is not This is not a quiz, really. It's just, you know, to show how easy it is to forget what happened last year. It is easy, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Apparently, he uh, couldn't name a Bollywood film. He hadn't got a clue. Having oh, right. <laughs> he probably didn't do his voting hopes much good. I, I, I knew I had something in common with him. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I knew something about Zach yeah. Smith, but not Why... That. Why was a photograph of health and safety auditor Ben Innes in the news in March? Probably because he made a mistake relating to health and safety. No. Um, He uh, posed (laughs) next to a fake hijacker with the explosive belt wrapped around him on a Egypt Air Flight MS 181. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> Not too obscure for me. It, it was actually quite well publicised because it probably didn't do his <laughs> hopes of getting further votes very good either, you know. Anyway, there we go. Right, the Museum of London Archaeology confirmed in June that it discovered what during a dig at the new headquarters of Bloomberg in the city. What did they confirm they discovered? Oh, wait a minute, this was a mass mass burial pit, wasn't it? Um, With quite a few skeletons in. No. No. It was a Roman tablet believed to be the oldest handwritten document in Britain. Oh, not far off. (laughs) Good try, good try. (laughs) Ruled it. Do you know any of these, Duncan? No, he's shaking his head. This is... These are some sort of headline-hitting things in the newspapers. <laughs> oh, we are doing well. Okay. Uh, what have we got? What have we got? What have we got? 
Um, okay, the new £5 note was introduced in September featuring the image of Sir Winston Churchill alongside which of his, his notable quotes? Which of his notable quotes is on the new £5 note? Oh, nothing to offer except blood, sweat and... Tears. Tears. Good God. <laughs> is that right? We have one. Have you got a round of applause there? Right, okay. <laughs> oh dear. Yeah. What if we got a couple more? We only do we just do two more and then we would better get on to other things. Uh, what item in March was valued at more than a million on the antique roadshow, marking it the most valuable item ever seen on the programme? No. No? Anybody? I, I watch antiques, but um, I don't remember. Yeah, I, I tend to watch it. But it was the FA Cup trophy used from 1911 until 1992. 1911 oh, to right. 1992. Yeah. yeah. Okay. No. What? I didn't see that. No. That program. No, no, no. no. Oh, that's cool. I'll be, I'll, there's a couple more questions here. I'll ask them later. You know, that's one out of. Eight so far. That's very good. Well, I hope our listeners <laughs> did better than that. Right, okay. We've been given a bit more time. <laughs> right. Uh, we didn't do any sort of. Uh, considering uh, last year there was, I think, a record amount of um, famous people's death, mm. and we haven't done any of those. We might do a few later on because there was a remarkable amount. Uh, right, okay. One of the uh, people, uh, one of the Hollywood stars that died was Zaza Gabor. And uh, Zaza Gabor uh, was 99, or she could have been 99. She never sort of really agreed to what her age was. She was a veteran actress and socialite, uh, was credited with creating a new kind of fame based on flaunting wealth and glamour and uh, possessing a jaded wisdom and some of the, the jaded wisdom Margaret is going to tell us here yes here I have some of her words of wisdom starting with uh, I am a great housekeeper every time I get a divorce I keep the house I never hated a man enough to give him his diamonds back husbands are like fires they go out if unattended agree with all of this <laughs> getting divorced just because you don't love a man is almost as silly as getting married just because you do <laughs> uh, I, I want a man who's kind and understanding and is that too much to ask of a millionaire <laughs> how many husbands have I had you mean apart from my own <laughs> oh dear uh, one of my theories is that men love with their eyes and women love with their ears. Uh, I know nothing about sex because I was always married. <laughs> and uh, believe that if you like. Um, the only way to learn a language properly is in fact to marry a man of that nationality. You get what they called in Europe a sleeping dictionary. Of course, I've only been married five times, and I speak seven languages. I'm still trying to remember where I picked up the other two. So those are her, some of her words of wisdom. 
Uh, Zaza Gabor, it's uh, widely believed uh, she was born in 1917, which would have made her 99 on the day she died. Yet the star herself also claimed to have been born in 1930. If that were the case, she would have been just seven years old when she tied the knot for the first time in 1937. <laughs> 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 um, well, um, Chadley Barnes not here, so it's fallen on the uh, shoulders of Alan. Um, he's going to tell us uh, the sh a short history of Breeden Hill. Okay. Breeden Hill <clears throat> is the largest of the Cotswold outliers and is the only Cotswold hill to lie fully within Worcestershire, although part of the escarpment at Broadway also lies within the county. Both peaks have distinctive 18th century follies at their summit. <coughs> Breeden Hill is dotted with standing stones. It has three Iron Age forts, a Norman castle, a holy well, a disappeared cave and a folly. A host of tales and folklore add further mystery. Poets and novelists such as A.E. Houseman, John Moore and Fred Archer have written about it. There are sites that were of relevance to our pagan ancestors in the shape of the Banbury Stone, the King and Queen Stones and the stones at Breeden's Norton. <clears throat> Iron Age forts built by the De Bunny tribe dating from around 2000, I beg your pardon, 200 BC or earlier they exist at Condleton, Elmley and Kemerton Camp. There is further evidence of occupation of Breeden Hill in the Saxon period. The Kemerton Charter of 779 AD describes the city of Benetisburg atop the hill Broiden and the Pershaw survey of 972 AD describes the top as a city. Most of the villages around Breeden Hill have origins in this period, but this one was within the old Iron Age hill fort of Kemerton Camp. The hilltop village appears to have become deserted around the 11th century because it's not recorded in the Doomsday Survey. The construction of the Norman castle at Elmley began about 1080 to maintain authority over the newly conquered Saxons. The founder of the castle, as well as of Worcester's Long Gone Castle was Erse Davito, the Sheriff of Worcestershire and a friend of William the Conqueror. During the 12th century the castle came into the possession of the Beechams as did the castle at Worcester, although Elmley was their chief seat. After falling into a state of disrepair in the 14th century, the castle was taken by rebels in 1321. Although it was still habitable in the early 1500s, by the 1540s it was in ruins and became something of a quarry for local building repairs. Stone from Elmley Castle was reportedly used to repair, Pers repair Pershaw Bridge following the civil wars of the 17th century. A smuggler named Captain Bell was responsible for one of the more unusual buildings on the slopes of Breeden Hill at Kemerton. It is written that he wanted to build a castle with the proceeds of his criminal activities. So in 1820, he transformed a row of labourers' cottages into what is now a very fancy large house with battlements and turrets. 
The house, known as Bell's Castle, is now a private residence. It's said that Captain Bell's more illegal activities were brought to the attention of the law and he was hanged in 1841. He's said to have been buried near Pershore Abbey, but there's no sign of his grave. Parsons Folly stands at the summit of Breeden Hill and is visible for miles around. Being 39 feet tall, it takes the height of the hill from 961 feet to exactly 1,000 feet. Historians can't agree about who built Parsons Folly. Reverend Lloyd says this folly was built around 1714 as a summer house for William Parsons of Kemerton. But a correspondent to Country Life in 1960 claims that the folly was built as a prospect house for Mr Parsons of Kemerton in the late 18th century. <coughs> the last inhabitant of Breeden Hill appears to have been a hermit who lived in the ruined Parson Folly before its repair in the Second World War. Parsons Folly is certainly the most visible landmark for many miles around and every Good Friday pilgrims from villages around Breeden Hill meet on the top of the hill next to the folly for a Christian service. Breeden Hill is also notable for its standing stones, the best known of which are the King and Queen stones and the Banbury stone, although there are others. Both the Banbury and the King and Queen stones have healing folklore attached to them and are considered places of power by modern witches. The tradition of going to kiss the Banbury stone for good luck on Good Friday is one shared with many other stones around Britain. Other standing stones, Breeden's Norton stones, stand alongside a path linking Upper Westmancote to the manor at Breeden's Norton beside Alderwick Wood. There used to be a cave on Breeden Hill, but it's something of a mystery. In the 18th century, a clergyman, Dr Derham, wrote about the hill's long-vanished cave, although it's not clear exactly where it was located. Breeden has been the subject of plenty of folklore over the centuries. The best-known piece of folklore relates to its control over the local weather. There is a rhyme which goes, When Breeden Hill puts on his hat, Ye men of the vale, beware of that. When Breeden Hill does clear appear, Ye men of the vale, have nothing to fear. Another piece of folklore surrounds the beast of Breeden, a large black cat that had been sighted on various occasions roaming the hill, especially in the mid-1990s. But despite efforts by the authorities to track it down, its existence remains a mystery. Fred Archer, who lived from 1915 to 1999, grew up and farmed in Ashton-under-Hill and became well known for his books about life in Breeden Hill in the early part of the 20th century. Books such as The Secrets of Breeden Hill and A Hill Called Breeden gained him thousands of literary fans from near and far. The author John Moore, who was born in Tewkesbury, described life on and around Breeden Hill in the early, in the early 20th century in the Brensham Trilogy. And the scholar and poet A. E. Houseman, 
who was born in 1839 and died in 1936. He was born in North Worcestershire and he wrote this poem called simply Breeden Hill. Have you, before you read the poem, have you ever been to Breeden Hill? Have yes, you, quite a few times. I mean, does that really explain how good it is there? Because, I mean, there seems to be so many interesting things. There's a lot of interesting things to see and find, yeah, on Breeden. The, 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 is it Kemerton? Kemerton, yeah. yeah. The, I, I, when I was looking up this, I, I read somewhere that there was kilns with um, going back to... Um, the uh, Iron Age, nearly, with, with wheat in them. And yeah. they're still there. Yeah, I believe so. And the Romans also um, had a store there. Yeah, the, Ro- the Romans were quite keen. They had um, iron foundries in Worcester as well at around about that time. Yeah, yeah. Have you ever been to Breeden? No, well, I've seen Breeden Hill. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but, mm. uh, no, I haven't. It's fantastic. Yeah, I've walked over the top couple of times and cycled around it many many times yeah, I'd certainly like to go there now having having heard that yeah anyway would you, would you like to Houseman's poem yes I'll do that thank you uh, let, let me explain just once more Brian unfortunately was unable to um, come here tonight so it's down to the three of us to go through all these things so if there's a repetitive voices I'm afraid that was the problem blame Brian <laughs> <laughs> Breeden Hill In summertime, on Breeden, the bells, they sound so clear. Round both the shires, they ring them in steeples far and near. A happy noise to hear. Here of a Sunday morning, my love and I would lie and see the coloured counties and hear the larks so high about us in the sky. The bells would ring to call her in valleys miles away. Come to church, good people. Good people, come and pray, but here my love would stay. And I would turn and answer among the springing time, Oh, peal upon our wedding, and we will hear the chime, and come to church in time. But when the snows at Christmas on Breeden top were strown, my love rose up so early and stole out unbeknown and went to church alone. They told the one bell only, groom there was none to see. The mourners followed after, and so to church went she, and would not wait for me. The bells they sound on Breeden, and still the steeples hum. Come all to church, good people, O oh, noisy bells be dumb. I hear you, I will come. That's very nice, thank you. The reason um, I wanted to start with a story about Breeden Hill is that one of the people uh, in later life that lived there and was buried there was Victoria Woodall. Um, She was actually born in America. And um, if I say Hillary Clinton, um, uh, you'll see the connection in this story as Margaret reads it. Yes, as we have just heard, Victoria Woodall died in Breeden, Norton, Worcestershire, on the 9th of June 1927. Who was she? Well, Victoria Woodall was an American, and believe it or not, she was the first woman to run for President of the United States in 1872. So why, you ask, at least I hope you're asking, why was she living in Breeden, Worcestershire? The answer, I hope you will agree, 
you will find as interesting as I did in researching her story. Victoria Woodall was born Victoria, California, Kathleen, on the 23rd of September 1838, the seventh of ten children, in the rural frontier town of Homer, Licking County, Ohio. During her 88 years, she led an amazing life for a woman of the period, often, find, often finding herself amidst much intrigue and controversy. Victoria's mother, Roxana, or Roxy, was illegitimate and illiterate. She had become a follower of the Austrian mystic Franz Mesmer and the new spiritualist movement. This would prove to become a huge influence on Victoria on Victoria's life. Her father, Reuben Kathleen, known as Old Buck, it is recorded, was a con man and snake oil salesman. One of Victoria's biographers wrote that he had whipped and abused Victoria, which made he say many years later, Buck made her a woman before my time. By age 11, Woodhall had only three years of formal education, but her teachers found her to be extremely intelligent. It was at this time her father's actions forced the big, first big change in her life. Buck heavily insured the dilapidated gristmill the family lived in, then burnt it down. The insurance company easily found evidence of arson and once local townspeople heard of his fraudulent behaviour, a group of vigilantes ran him out of town. To assist Roxana and her children, the town held a benefit to raise funds to pay for the family's departure from Ohio. When Victoria was 14, she met 28-year-old Canning, or possibly Channing Woodhull, a doctor from a town outside Rochester, New York. Her family had consulted him to treat her chronic illness. Woodhall practiced medicine in Ohio at a time when the state did not require formal medical education and licensing. They were married on the 20th of November, 1853. Their marriage certificate was recorded in Cleveland on November the 23rd, 1853, when Victoria was two months past her 15th birthday. She soon learned that her husband was an alcoholic and a womanizer. She often had to work outside the home to support the family. She and Canning had two children, Byron and Zulu, later called Zula. After their children were born, Victoria divorced her husband and kept his surname. About 1866, Victoria married again to Colonel James Harvey Blood, who was also marrying for the second time. He had served in the Union Army in Missouri during the American Civil War and had been elected as a city auditor of St. Louis, Missouri. Woodall's support of free love, which later she became famous or infamous for, likely started after she discovered the infidelity of her first husband, Canning. Women who married in the United States during the 19th century were bound into the unions, even if loveless with few options to escape. Divorce was limited by law and considered socially scandalous. 
Women who divorced were stigmatised and often ostracised by society. Victoria Woodall concluded that women should have the choice to leave unbearable marriages. Woodall believed in monogamous relationships, although she also said that she had the right to change her mind. The choice to make love or not was, in every case, the woman's choice. She was quoted to say, since this would place her in an equal status to the man who had the capacity to rape and physically overcome a woman, whereas a woman did not have that capacity with respect to a man. To woman by nature belongs the right of sexual determination. When the instinct is aroused in her, then and then only should commerce follow. Then will this instinct become pure and holy. Then will woman be raised from the iniquity and morbidness in which she now wallows for existence. And the intensity and glory of her creative functions be increased a hundredfold. In the same speech, which became known as the Steinway speech, delivered on Monday the 20th of November 1871 in Steinway Hall, New York, Woodall said of free love, Yes, I am a free lover. I have an inalienable constitutional and natural right to love whom I may, to love as long or as short a period as I can, to change that love every day if I please, and with that right, neither you nor any law you can frame have any right to interfere. Woodhall and her sister, Tennessee Kathleen, travelled to New York City by railroad, entering and expanding a city of exploding population and gangsterism on Stoop Hill. On the streets, the open sewers competed with horse manure for the stench, the rich intermingled with poor on Broadway in Manhattan, prostitutes rubbing shoulders with haves, who included the richest American citizen, Commodore Vanderbilt, railroad proprietor and millionaire. <coughs> Victoria, with her sister Tennessee, Teddy Kathleen, became the first women stockbrokers and in 1870 they opened a brokerage firm on Wall Street. Woodhall, Kathleen and Company opened with the assistance of the wealthy Cornelius Vanderbilt, who it is suggested gave Victoria as much as $20,000 for liaisons he had with her, admiring, admiring Victoria's skills as a medium. He is rumoured to have been her sister Tenny's lover and to have seriously considered marrying her. Victoria made a fortune on the New York Stock Exchange by advising clients like Vanderbilt. On one occasion, she told him to sell his shares short for 150 cents per stock, which he duly followed and earned millions on the deal. Consequently, newspapers such as the New York Herald hailed Woodhall and Kathleen as the queens of finance and the bewitching brokers. Many contemporary men's journals, for example, The Day's Doings, published sexualized, sexualized images of the pair running their firm, although they did not participate in the day-to-day -day business of the firm, linking the concept of publicly-minded, unchaperoned women with ideas of sexual immorality, immorality, 
immorality, sorry about that. And, and prostitution, got that, yes. <laughs> it's not a word you're common with. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. uh, many of these aren't. In the 14th, on the 14th of May 1870, Woodhall and Kathleen used the money they had made from their brokerage to found a newspaper, the Woodhall and Kathleen Weekly. Its primary purpose was to support Victoria Woodhall for President of the United States. Published for the next six years, feminism was the weekly's primary interest, but it became notorious for publishing controversial opinions on taboo sub subjects, advocating more, among other things, sex education, free love, women's suffrage, short skirts, spiritualism, vegetarianism and licensed prostitution. History often states the paper advocated birth control, but some historians disagree. The paper is now known for printing the first English version of Karl Marx's Communist Manifesto in its 30th December 1871 edition, the paper arguing the, the cause of labour with eloquence and skill. James Blood and Stephen Pearl Andrews wrote the majority of the articles, as well as other able contributors. <coughs> Victoria learned how to infiltrate the all-male domain of national politics and arranged to testify on women's suffrage before the House of Judiciary Committee. Victoria argued that women already had the right to vote. All they had to do was use it, since the 14th and 15th Amendments guaranteed the protection of that right for all citizens. The simple but powerful logic of her argument impressed some committee members. With the power of her first public appearance as a woman's, right, woman's rights advocate, Woodhall moved to the leadership circle of the suffrage movement. Although her constitutional argument was not original, she focused unprecedented public attention on suffrage. Woodhall was the first woman ever to petition Congress in person. Numerous newspapers reported her appearance before the Congress. Frank Leslie's illustrated newspaper printed a full-page engraving of Woodhull, surrounded by prominent suffragists delivering her argument. Victoria announced her candidacy for president by writing a letter to the editor of the New York Herald on the 2nd of April 1870 and was nominated for president of the United States by the newly formed Equal Rights Party on May the 10th, 1872, at Apollo Hall, New York City. Her nomination was ratified at the convention on 6 June 1872. They nominated the former slave and abolitionist leader, Frederick Douglass, for vice president. He did not attend the convention and never acknowledged the nomination. However, this made her the first woman candidate. Having previously been vilified in the media for her support of free love, Victoria devoted an issue of Woodhall and Kathleen's Weekly, the 2nd of November 1872, to an alleged adulterous affair between Elizabeth Tilton and the Reverend Henry Ward Beecher, a prominent Protestant minister in New York who supported female suffrages, suffrages, suffrage, sorry, but lectured against free love in his sermons. 
Victoria published the article to highlight what she saw as a sexual double standard between men and women. That same day, a few days before the presidential election, US federal marshals arrested Woodhull. Her second husband, Colonel James Blood, and her sister, Tenny Kathleen, on charges of publishing an obscene newspaper because of the content of the issue. The sisters were held in the Ludlow Street Jail for the next month, a place normally reserved for civil offences, but which contained more hardened criminals as well. The arrest was arranged by Anthony Comstock, the self-appointed moral defender of the nation at the time. Opponents raised questions about censorship and government persecution. The three were acquitted on a technicality six months later, but the arrest prevented Woodall from attempting, attempting to vote during the 1872 presidential election. With the publication of the scandal, Theodore Tilton, the husband of Elizabeth, sued Beecher for alienation of affection. The trial in 1875 was sensationalised across the nation and eventually resulted in a hung jury. Victoria again tried to gain nomina nominations for the presidency in 1884 and 1892 and was quoted as saying that she was destined by prophecy to be elected president of the United States in the upcoming election. But again, nothing came of her endeavours. In October 1876, Woodhall divorced her second husband, Colonel Blood, and less than a year later, exhausted and possibly depressed, she left to start a new life. When Commodore Vanderbilt died, his son, William Henry Vanderbilt, gave Victoria and Tennessee a large sum of money to leave the country and set up in England. On the 4th of December 1877, Victoria made her first public appearance in England as a lecturer at St James Hall in London. On her lecture was called The Human Body, The Temple of God, a lecture which she had previously presented in the United States. Present at one of her lectures was the banker John Biddulph Martin. They began to see each other and married on 31st October 1883. His family disapproved of the union, but eventually gave in. From then on, she was known as Victoria Woodhall Martin. Under that name, she published the magazine, The Humanitarian, from 1892 to 1901, with help from her daughter, Zula, Zula Woodhall. After her husband died in 1901, Martin gave up publishing and retired to the country, establishing residence at Breeden's Norton. Her opposition to abortion is frequently cited by opponents of abortion when writing about first-wave feminism. The most common Woodhall quotations cited by opponents of abortion are the rights of children as individuals begin while yet they remain the fetus. Every woman knows that if she were free, she would never bear an unwished-for child, nor think of murdering one before its birth. Victoria also promoted eugenics, which was popular in the 20th century prior to World War II. Her interest in eugenics might have been motivated by the profound intellectual impairment of her son. She advocated, among other things, sex education, marrying well, 
and prenatal care as a way to bear healthier children and to prevent mental and physical disease. Her writings demonstrate views closer to those of the anarchist eugenists rather than the coercive eugenists like Sir Francis Galton. In 2006, publisher Michael W. Perry claimed in his book Lady Eugenist that Victoria supported the forcible sterilisation of those she considered unfit to breed. He based his claim on a New York Times article from 1927 in which she concurred with the ruling of the case Buck v. Bell. If this article accurately states her views, it would stand in stark contrast to her earlier works in which she advocated social freedom and opposed government interference in matters of love and marriage. Victoria Woodhull Martin died on the 9th of June 1927 at Norton Park in Breeden's Norton, Worcestershire. Her ashes were scattered at sea. Two of the many places Victoria is remembered are a cenotaph of Victoria Woodall is located in Tewkesbury Abbey. There is a historical marker located outside the Homer Public Library in Licking County, Ohio, to mark Woodhall as the first woman candidate for President of the United States. I'm sorry, Mark, I didn't realise when I set that up, it was so long. <laughs> I really am very, very sorry. <laughs> but there's a glass. <laughs> it's a good story, though, it's isn't it? It's just cut off. No. <laughs> it's a good story. Yes. It's Interesting. Well, I know, it's fabulous, but I know also the connection with Hillary Clinton. That's yes, why yeah. I dug it up. In fact, uh, Kate, Kate mentioned it. She knew of... Uh, of, of Victoria Woodall before, um, so um, oh, and she just she just led such mm. a mm. incredible life. I mean, yeah. so so ahead of her time. Ahead of, of her things. time. Yeah, absolutely. Well, the one thing that rather surprised me following that story is that <clears throat> she was an advocate of free love, yeah, and yet opposed abortion. Mm. Yeah, it's strange. That it? seems to be yeah, sort of counterproductive, if mm. you like. Well, that's a funny way of putting it. Yeah, <laughs> Come on. Good choice of words. We're going to have a break in a minute, which you won't know about, of course, because it'll only be a second for you at home. But um, Alan's got got a few jokes there he's going to read, and I've got one or two here that I shall have done. Give okay. Margaret a rest. Let's see what we've got here. <coughs> this sounds a bit like Tim Vine. Um, my dad has suggested that I register for a donor card. He's a man after my own heart. <laughs> Why is it old people say... There's no place like home, yet when you put them in one... (laughs) I've been happily married for four years, out of a total of ten. Apparently one in three Britons are conceived in an Ikea bed, which is mad, because those places are really well lit. (laughs) Hang on, I've got one here. I'm not sure this is politically correct, but I'm going to say it anyway. A blonde walks into an appliance store. She goes to the cashier and says, I'd like to buy that television. The cashier replies, we don't sell to blondes. Furious, the blonde storms out of the store. The next day, the blonde goes back to the store with a black wig on. She goes to the same cashier and says, I'd like to buy that television. The cashier replies, we don't sell to blondes. 
confused and angry, the blonde says to him, How do you know I'm a blonde? I have a back whip black wig on. The cashier replies, Of course, that's a microwave. <laughs> Not a television. <laughs> okay, we're going to have a break now, and uh, you won't know about it. We'll be back in a, about two seconds. <laughs> Right, um, we had our little break, which uh, was very refreshing. And now we're going to do, I've brought along um, a music quiz for a change, and uh, we're going to do it in maybe two or three parts in the second half now. And uh, what we've got, we've got some popular music and we've got some classical music. And instead of playing the whole thing to you, I'm going to play them one at a time. Then I'm going to ask my... Uh, two colleagues here if they know who it is. All I want is either um, the singer or the musician or with classical, there's a few classicals tucked in here, um, who the composer is. Um, it's a bit of fun, a bit of music, saves us having to talk too much. So here we go with number one. number one now Alan I believe you know who it was I think it's Rod Stewart no well I'm <laughs> surprised <laughs> I, know, I know the music but I couldn't tell no. you. well as I said I'm going to give you the answers straight away um, because I, I, we can't obviously play it twice um, when I give you the answer so that was Brian Adams okay this is number right. two thought it was going to be the 1812 Overture. Well, who, who do you think is the composer? That's what I've, I've forgotten that. Um, well, it wasn't. It wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> so it doesn't matter. No, it was, it was in fact Beethoven. Oh, was it? Yes, oh. it was. I think that's da-da-da-da, uh, yeah, which is yeah. the, 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 the Morse for D. Is that Beethoven's Yeah, yeah it was. Mm. And that's <clears> the da-da-da-da, uh, which yeah. was the code yeah. for D-Day. Da-da-da-da. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. Right, okay, this is number three. 
packing up I'm getting ready to go Had enough I can't take any more No pills That I can take This is too real And there ain't no escape Right, that was uh, number three And apparently Duncan knows that one I think he's known them all up until now um, Right Brian. Ah, Alan. 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 Pick your pond. Alan. Davy Cameron. <laughs> Margaret. No idea. No idea. No. <laughs> it was Nick Lowe who was cracking up, is that we are now that Brian's not here, and it's putting too much work on us. <laughs> Nick Lowe. Right, number four. No, it wasn't Alan, but no, Alan, just no. Alan no. I, I, I don't even recognise the, 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 the music, let alone the composer. I recognise it well. Is it Mozart? Yes! Oh, wow! Very, very good. <laughs> Round of applause. Bottle, have we got any champagne? <laughs> oh, we have. Oh, good. <laughs> right, we're going to have a from the party, left over from the party. All oh, right, Okay. Should have told us when we were having the break. <laughs> right, one more, and then we get on to some stories. Okay. We're looking for the group this time. Alan. Elgar. He has all that majesty of performance. But he wrote it on the Morven Hills. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, oh, no, I'm the clue, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Margaret. 
No idea. No idea. Duncan, you you know, don't you? Oh, right, okay. It's not the Rolling Stones, yeah, it was, is it? No, no. It was from the sixties, but it was Fleetwood Mac. Oh, oh right. Well. well, I've heard of them, but huh? that's about it. No, Fleetwood Mac. Yeah. Sorry, I'm talking to Duncan through there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we woke him up with the noise. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, Brian, you said you had a health and safety story. Oh, Brian, again, I'm sorry, Alan. Yeah, I must move around the table to, my, to the other position, mustn't I? Um, yes, I did. I, yeah. We, we hear... I've got a dementia story. We, we hear tales about health and safety and what a, a load of troddle it can be. And it's nearly always that somebody else... But this happened to me about three or four weeks ago. I was in Worcester went into a celebrated coffee shop for a cup of coffee and the conversation went something like this. Um, person behind the counter said, can I help you? And I thought, well, what, I'm here for a cup of coffee. What else are you going to do? But I just said, yes, I'll have a coffee. What would you like? I said, I'll have an Americano. Would you like milk or cream with that? No, I don't want milk or cream. I just want an Americano. Yes, sir. So she's, he, he starts getting that. And I said, um, I'll have a fruit scone and some butter, please. Um, yes, would you like um, jam? No, thank you. Would you like cream? No, thank you. Just butter. Yes, sir. So I end up with a tray. On the tray is a cup of coffee, the Americano, and a plate with a scone and two pats of butter. And then he said to me, would you like a knife? And I thought, well, how else am I going to spread the butter on the scone? I didn't, I wasn't sarcastic. I just said, yes, please. So he picks the knife up, goes to hand it to me and says, are you over 18? (laughs) I said, look at my face. No, honestly, this is health and safety gone absolutely bonkers. Yeah. Absolutely bonkers. Anyway. Anyway, Brian. Uh, Brian was going to read this, but uh, poor old Alan's now going to get stuff with it. Uh, the First World War was, of course, still raging 100 years ago. And uh, Alan is now going to tell us the story of Gunner Miles, who went into battle in one of those early tanks. Over to you, Alan. I've got your name right this time, thank God. That's good. <laughs> yeah. um, yes, th- this family unearths the story of a tank hero killed on the first day of action. They were called His Majesty's Land Ships, and it was hoped that they would provide the key to breaking the stalemate of trench warfare. But manning these new instruments of mechanised warfare could be just as hellish as wading through the mud and the barbed wire outside. The early tanks were rudimentary, slow and almost impossible to steer. The crew of eight could only see where they were going through tiny metal hatches and relied on sending back carrier pigeons to show their position. William Joseph Miles was one of the men who, in 1915, formed part of the mechanised units who took the new tanks into battle against the Germans. 
He was killed on the first day of action during what turned out to be the last battle of the Somme. Gunnar Miles' remarkable story can be told for the first time after it was unearthed by one of his great nephews who until recently never even knew of his existence. The 31-year-old's tank, an A-13 Mark I, equipped with machine guns on either side, was one of three sent out ahead of the British advance on November the 13th, 1916, to punch a hole through the German trenches. Gunnamal's tank was the only one that made it across no man's land. One broke down before even getting going. The other became stuck in the thick mud, but it eventually became trapped on German lines. Surrounding, surrounded on all sides, the order was given to abandon. Gunnar Miles and his commander were killed instantly as they emerged. A third crew member was badly wounded and later died of his injuries. Realising there was no escape, the remaining crew jumped back inside the tank and managed to get it going again. They powered on deep into the German line. So fierce was their fire that German battle logs record two tanks piling in through the fog. Incredibly, they managed to release a carrier pigeon through the melee, carrying a rescue note. An hour later, a detachment from the Sherwood Foresters and the Black Watch arrived and drove back the Germans surrounding the tank. The surviving crew inside had managed to hold out. A sketch, drawn a few days after the battle, shows tank A-13 still teetering sideways in the German trenches, two freshly dug graves beside it. They belonged to Gunnar Miles and his commander. Gunnar Miles had volunteered to fight in 1915, leaving behind his wife, May Gertrude, and their newly born daughter, Doris. He had grown up in the working-class town of Smethwick on the outskirts of Birmingham, before moving to the nearby boom town of Coventry to set up a successful window cleaning service. His mechanical aptitude meant that he was posted to the machine gun corps and soon singled out by his superiors to join a top-secret unit developing the new tanks. Gunnar Miles' story only came to light when his great-nephew, Martin Miles, an IT director from near Winchester, and his wife Carol, began researching their family history. Mr Miles' grandfather, Frank, himself a soldier in the First World War, who served with distinction in the Royal Horse Artillery, had never mentioned his brother Joe. Like many of his generation, Frank refused to speak about the war or the heroism for which he was awarded a clutch of medals. He had seen so much dreadful stuff that he couldn't talk about it, says Martin, aged 61. He died in 1967 when I was only 11 years old. At that age, you are a bit in awe of your granddad. I just wish I'd asked him some more questions. But after painstaking research, Mr Miles and his wife managed to uncover one of the most fascinating stories from that bloody day. As well as finding several old images of Joe Miles' tank beached in the German trench, Mr Martin has also managed to get hold of a photograph of the gunner himself, taken shortly before his posting to the Somme. 
Dressed in his wool army uniform, he stands proudly next to his wife and baby daughter. It's amazing to think you have this whole side of the family who you never knew about, says his great nephew. This guy volunteered, was proud of his king and country, and believed what he was doing, and yet, on his first day of action, he was killed. Gunnar Miles was among 3,418 British soldiers killed on that November day. That's a sad story. Um, right, Margaret, uh, we're going to do two stories about um, uh, well-known people from Worcester, Worcester, really, Worcester in the city. Uh, and you're going to start with... Um, Elsie Wood, eccentric Elsie Wood. Known as Lady The White, white. Lady. Oh, the, the, white lady, lady. white lady. The White yes. Lady, yes. All right, so, so fond memories of the late and eccentric Elsie Wood. For year, years, a familiar figure on the Worcester Street scene and nicknamed the White Lady have been sent me by 77-year-old Miss Jean Turner. She wrote the following recent Memory Lane piece on some of the once flamboyant streets, ca street characters of the faithful city. Elsie Wood, a hefty woman, would glide around the city with her face caked in white makeup and wearing very unusual outfits, usually all white, plus equally distracting headgear, sometimes featuring stuffed birds. She rarely spoke to anyone and is believed to have lived in the Shrub Hill area. It was widely rumoured she became an eccentric and a recluse after being jilted as a young woman. However, Jean Turner of Cranham Drive, Worcester, has sent me an insight into a more normal and appealing Elsie Wood in her youth before the onset of eccentricity. Jean writes... I left school in 1940 at the age of 14 and was fortunate enough to get a job at the Cadbury's factory in Blackpool Road, where cocoa tins were made and various tasks carried out for the company's Bourneville works, such as sorting the sorting of nuts. It was a privilege to work there in those hard times and we were known as Cadbury's young ladies. It was there that I met Elsie Wood and I remember her well. We all wore white coats sitting in rows. She was a very elegant young lady then in her twenties. We were not allowed to wear makeup, but I remember to this day Elsie's very clear skin and kind smile. We were not allowed to converse, our only communication being through sign language, though we had to keep a watch out for the forewoman, who had very sharp eyes and a stern manner. Even in the lavatory, a lady sat on duty to make sure no conversation nor time wasting took place. The only chance for a chat was during the breaks, particularly the mid-morning one, when we had to file out into the yard for a hot chocolate and biscuits. We were then able to talk, but only for a few moments, not much time for getting to know one another. The working day was from 7.30 till 5.30pm, 7.30am till 5.30pm, though juveniles were given a half day off on Thursday. The regime was very strict, as the Cabris were Quakers, but they took great pains to look after the welfare of their employees. In the factory grounds were a swimming pool, tennis courts and other amenities, which we were encouraged to use at any time outside working hours. 
We were all very happy there and it was a great start to my working life, even though my wage then was only seven shillings and sixpence a week. There were no buses to the factory, so we all had bikes. Mine cost me ten bob. Elsie Wood had one just like mine. At that time, she lived somewhere along Bilford Road and her father also worked at Cadbury's in the grounds. I sat close to Elsie sorting nuts and noticed that she would occasionally draw ladies wearing flowing Victoria dresses. Victorian dresses. I think she was quite clever, really. I don't believe the story of a broken love affair of, of, or of her having been jilted because Elsie always seemed quite happy. Alas, my job at Cadbury's came to a sudden end when the factory was turned over to making munitions for the war effort. As I was under 18, I was not allowed to stay and undertake this type of work. It was a sad day because my time at Cabras was one of the best of my life. In later years, I regularly saw Elsie around Worcester, always wearing lovely silk dresses, very much like the Victorian ones she used to sketch at Cabras. I wondered if she'd made them herself, and when she caught my eye, there was a faint smile of recognition. Unfortunately, during her later years, she became very strange with her face made up so white. You could often see her walking around Aswood Cemetery too, and I understand she eventually died in Shrub Hill Hospital. And Jean adds, even to this day, her memory is still very fresh in my mind. Elsie left a great impression on me, and I always had a soft spot for her, and it hurt me a lot when I saw people ridicule her. Thank you. That wasn't as long as the last one, was it? No, thank goodness. <laughs> um, following uh, the White Lady, uh, uh, Worcester had its fair share of animal antique stories, and while uh, 2013 may have been dominated by sightings of Keith the Seal, uh, this year, which probably was last year, was all about uh, the all-white squirrel, which had been made the trees lining Pitchcroft its home. The squirrel was thought uh, taught the squirrel taught us a few. I wish I could read. The squirrel taught us a few things. It was not an albi albino squ uh, squirrel as first thought, but in fact a leukistic a condition caused by a reduction in all types of skin pigment, which I don't think you knew. <laughs> um, you've got another um, famous Worcester character. Yes, I have. Now, listen carefully, everybody. <laughs> Hands up, everybody who knew Chicken George. Quick count. Yes, everybody. Everybody. George Webb, better known to the population of the faithful city as Chicken George, died at a Worcestershire nursing home last Thursday. He was 86. For about half a century, Chicken George became synonymous with Worcester, dancing along to the music of street buskers, much to the amusement of the general public. No one knows how the nickname Chicken George came about, but common rumour is that his erratic dancing reminded people of a pecking chicken. So well known was he that artists even included him in paintings when capturing Worcester street life. <coughs> me. Although many buskers were not fazed by his particularly quirky sense of rhythm being a backdrop to their music, there were occasions when he found himself involved 
in physical encounters with some artists who didn't see the funny side. Also, much to the anger of some, he would often litter the air with profanities as he went about his day. In an interview with Worcester News in 2002, and by then confined to a buggy with leg trouble, he admitted he had a fascination with street musicians. He said, I love their music, it makes me want to dance. Chicken George was fiercely patriotic and claimed to have fought in the war at Dunkirk and killed a man in armed combat fighting for the Worcestershire Regiment. He recounted, I got a bayonet wound in me head from Dunkirk, but I got him. I lived and he didn't. It's because I got that strong constitution, see? I never give in and won't back off. I'm the one that keeps on going. It's just a crafty little way I got. He was well known for his attendance at Remembrance Day parades at the cathedral and religiously attended regimental reunions. In recent years, he'd lived in Lowersmore, but deteriorating health meant a recent stay in hospital. And unable to care for himself, he spent the last few weeks of his life at St Cloud's Nursing Home in Callowind, where he passed away on Thursday, September the 7th. Sue Jones, who's manager of St Cloud's, said George's character in the last days of his life remained as vibrant as ever. She said... He never lost his sense of humour. He stayed with him to the end. He's a very popular character. All the girls knew who it was and he was totally charming. The city and county councillor and former mayor of Worcester, Derek Proger, paid tribute to him. He said this little guy was always cheerful and a real character. He liked his local pubs and he gave people a bit of entertainment. He was nice to have a conversation with and it's sad that characters like this disappear and rarely replaced. Chicken George was single, without family, and as yet arrangements for his funeral are yet to be finalised. Uh, there was one little thing slightly wrong with that. It was a, a bit older article than when you said he died a couple of days ago or something. It was a bit longer ago than that, but it's a lovely story about Chicken George. Do you remember Chicken George? I do, yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. yeah I, think, I think most people from us yes. to remember yes. him. When I, when I worked for the city council, I had occasions many times to encounter Chicken, <laughs> Chicken George. George, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, close quarters. Yeah. OK, uh, let's have one story each, then we'll have um, the another few music things. How long we got left, Duncan? No, that long. Oh, good. Right. Um, here's a little story I found. When NASA started sending up astronauts, they quickly discovered that ballpoint pens would not work at zero gravity. To combat the problem, NASA scientists spent a decade and $12 billion developing a pen that would rotate at zero gravity, upside down, underwater, and on almost any surface, including glass, and at temperatures ranging from below freezing to 300 centigrade. The Russians used a pencil. <laughs> <laughs> Alan. Well, <clears throat> this one's called Winter Boots. Now, anyone who has ever dressed a child will love this. The teacher was helping one of her pupils put on his boots. 
He asked for help, and she could see why. Even with her pulling and him pushing, the little boots still didn't want to go on. By the time they got the second boot on, she'd worked up a sweat. <coughs> she almost cried when the little boy said, Please, miss, they're on the wrong feet. She looked, and sure enough, they were. Unfortunately, it wasn't any easier pulling the boots off than it was putting them on. She managed to keep her cool as together they worked to get the boots back on, this time on the correct feet. He then announced, These aren't my boots. She bit her tongue rather than get right in his face and scream, Why didn't you say so? like she wanted to. Once again, she struggled to help him pull the ill-fitting boots off his little feet. No sooner had they got the boots off when he said, They're my brother's boots, but my mum made me wear them today. Now she didn't know whether she should laugh or cry. But she mustered up what grace and courage she had left to wrestle the boots back onto his feet again. Helping him into his coat, she asked, Now, where are your mittens? And he said, I stuffed them in the toes of my boots. <laughs> She'll be eligible for parole in three years. <laughs> Margaret, have you a joke? Uh, For yes. a story. Right. Um, a blonde goes to the doctor. And the doctor says, what seems to be the problem? She touches her forehead with her finger and says, my head hurts here, ouch. She touches her leg with her finger and says, my leg here hurts, ouch. Everywhere I touch it hurts, doctor. The doctor looks over the blonde for a second and says, your finger is broken. <laughs> <laughs> right, one um, more than the music. Um, I suspect everyone's heard this, but I think it's funny. A duck walks into a post office and asks the man behind the counter, do you have any corn in duck? He said it in duck language. Do you have any corn? <laughs> the man answered politely, no, we don't have any corn here. The next day, the duck enters again and asks, in duck, do you have any corn? <laughs> Annoyed, the man answers, no, we don't have any corn. He said it slowly so the duck understood. <laughs> this goes on for a couple of days until finally, when the duck asks, in duck, do you have any corn? The man gets upset and yells, No, for the last time we don't have any corn, and if you ask again, I'll nail your beak to the counter. He said it slowly but very loud. The next day the duck returns and asks, Do you have any nails? The man answers, No. Then the duck asks, Do you have any corn? <laughs> <laughs> Oh dear. Okay, music, music, music. Um, right, this is an another one, and this is classical, so it's the composer we're looking for.
Okay. Alan. <laughs> I love this piece of music. It's really, really beautiful. And uh, the composer should be... No, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Have you got one yet? No. No, I just had... Have you got a record player at all? <laughs> What's a record player? <laughs> <laughs> I've still got a record player. I've got hundreds of LPs, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah so have we. Yeah. No, I think I just... it added to the reasons of my divorce. <laughs> <laughs> I just can't put a name to that one. I know. Well, the ballet speaks, isn't it? Tchaikovsky's ballet. Duncan, do you know? No, it's Cher. It was a remake of a, a, a one she made very much earlier with Sonny. Sonny and Cher. Yeah. Okay, try this one. Oh, this is another classical. Oh, I'm good at these. <laughs> yes, you're doing very well so far. Yes, again. again. <laughs> I know it so well, and I can't. Yeah, I, I, I know the tune, but yeah, that's the thing with uh, classical music. I'm yeah. afraid I'm. I like the tunes, and yes. I like the. Yes. But very few I know. Do tell us. Yeah, it was Greek. Greek. Uh, Greek. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, and we'll have two more, and then we we'll go back to um, uh, some more stories. Okay, number. This is number nine of ten. So. <laughs> Sleepy, dusty Delta day I was out chopping cotton And my brother was bailing hay And at dinner time we stopped And walked back to the house to eat And mama hollered at the back door Y'all remember to wipe your feet Uh, dare I ask, Alan? 
I got this on a couple of tracks back home. Sure, I have. I don't know if it's familiar, but. Um, yeah, as a quiz team, <laughs> we do very well. Where is it? <laughs> Quizzing quiz team. I said, as a quiz team, I, I oh, sit yeah. around the table, do extraordinarily well. It was Bobby Gentry. Oh, yeah. Yeah? Yeah. yeah. All right, one more. And this is finish off with a classical one. Here. Oh, God, I love these. Yeah, yeah. Oh, finish on a high. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Strauss, yes. Oh, wow. <laughs> I like the next one. I should play that. I might finish that when, when I'll play the next one on the way when we finish. Okay. Um, what's your next story, Alan? Um, well, I've got uh, Hannah Snell, the woman soldier. You've got a couple of your own, haven't you, that you wanted to read? Oh, yes. We're getting near the end now. Um, Newport Street? Yeah, whichever you fancy. Yeah? Yeah, yeah, carry okay. on, carry on, carry on. Um, Right, the other day, after I was doing some shopping in Worcester, I was going back to the car, which is parked close to the river. As I walked down Newport Street, I noticed a plaque fixed to the side of the new block of flats. It had some sort of pictorial theme, which didn't make too much sense. <clears throat> A little further on, there was another one. In all, I found seven. And although they were emblematic and a little vague in meaning, I did find one which described the whole range. The series represent the historical progress over many years of this street, which is no more than 200 yards long, and existed in Roman times as a slag roadway from the ironworks in the town, which crossed the floodplain to a ford at the river, which could be used at low tide. After the Romans left, Farming replaced industry, and the street became an important route when Worcester was re-fortified in the late Anglo-Saxon period. Following the Norman conquest and land reclamation, merchants' houses were built along the street. <clears throat> in medieval times, the city walls were built, and Worcester's prosperity grew, largely based on cloth-making and dyeing. In the 18th to 19th century, however, Newport Street and neighbouring Dolday became very overcrowded with people and industry and became notorious slums, which were not finally cleared until the 1930s. In recent years, the area was a bus station, a car park, and now Spartan New Flats. While researching for this article, I found a gem of a quotation relating to Old Worcester. <coughs> Cesspits, or privies, can be an archaeologist, archaeolog... I'd better start that one again, hadn't I? No, go on, say it. Say the word. Go on, say it, say it, say it. Archaeologist. Archaeologist. Gold mine. <laughs> Archaeologists. Archaeologists, let's try That's that one. That's yeah. Go on, carry on, carry on, come on. They're a gold mine <laughs> for those people who dig up ruins. 
Okay, I'll take their word for that one. However, it's true that a lot of history can be confirmed by remains found in those pits. Apart from the more obvious artefacts in the Worcester excavations, was the discovery of grains of paradise and black pepper. Now, both are rare and are evidence of the long-distance trade in exotic spices that became increasingly common from the late medieval period onwards. The paradise grains have been found in St Mary Laporte in Bristol, and it's almost certain they would have carried on the seven trowels or cargo boats to Worcester. <coughs> as the grains of paradise were originally imported from West Africa, and as Bristol was one of the key ports involved in the slave trade, it's quite feasible to connect the two activities. The vision of stores of this spice in the holds of boats carrying slaves may be an uncomfortable one, but was a reality of the times. Research by the historian Pat Hughes showed that the rich and poor lived close by. The wealthier house owners were generally on Newport Street and the poorer households on Dolday. The Paradise Grains were found behind 26 to 28 Newport Street, where the Parker family lived and worked as weavers in the mid-16th century. <coughs> now, there was some recent conversation regarding the old bus station, which might resonate with a few people. If you were a passenger back in the 60s, according to many accounts, there was an awful smell which used to pervade the area from time to time and various reasons were offered as to the source. The sewage works at Bromwich Road, or the abattoir, was suspected, but the blame generally ended up at the MSF business close by, which used to stop large quantities of animal feed. So, that's another mystery solved, unless you know better. Right, um, I think we've got time for one more story from Margaret. And this one, um, when you consider the age of, let's say for one example, Spitfire pilots in the Second World War during the Battle of Britain was about 20, 21, the average age of pilots then, who, you've got to say, saved the country from a German invasion. You'll understand why I'm saying this when Margaret reads the story. Yes, now this concerns adults. We don't really think we're adults until we're 33. <clears throat> These days, modern Britons do not consider themselves to be an adult until they've reached the age of 33, a survey found. In the 1940s and 50s, we thought ourselves grown up at 25. But today's generation are more reluctant to grow up than their parents were, with 76% of over 30s saying they still act as if as they did in their teens and early 20s. The poll of almost 2,000 people also revealed a host of behaviours that Britons in their 30s, 40s and even 50s now deem acceptable, including binging all weekend on TV box sets, <coughs> relying on their elderly parents for DIY and gardening help, and using nicknames for friends. Other signs, you are kidult, in quotes, an adult yet, which is an adult yet to grow up, includes staying up all night playing computer games, wearing a t-shirt with the name of your favourite band and getting a tattoo, still listening to Radio 1, attending a stag and hen do 
Hindus abroad, watching reality shows such as The Only Way is Essex and Made in Chelsea, and riding a scooter to work or on the school run, are other signs you're acting your shoe size rather than your age. The poll by Sweetmaker Tangerine Confectionery found that the over-30s consider signs of being an adult to include getting a mortgage, writing a will or reviewing their pension. That's it. That is it. Yeah. Yes. Well, thanks very um, much. Um, I'll just try and find another joke to finish off with, but I can't find one. So, Alan, you've got another joke to finish off with, haven't you? Um, yes, I've got so. Well, it's it's a it's a bit, it's a bit of philosophy, really. Um, these days we all lead busy, stressful lives, but maybe we ought to ask ourselves some searching questions about our own lifestyle. If you can start the day without caffeine, if you can always be cheerful, ignoring aches and pains, if you can resist complaining and boring people with your troubles, if you can eat the same food every day and be grateful for it, if you can understand when your loved ones are too busy to give you any time, if you can take criticism and blame without resentment, if you can conquer tension without medical help, if you can relax without alcohol, if you can sleep without the aid of drugs, then you are probably the family dog. Very good. Okay, we're just about finished, so um, I'd like to say thank you very much, Alan, and good night to you, and good night to you, Margaret, and I'm terribly right. sorry about that awfully long one you got that's fine, with, I'll uh, recover. Okay, we're going to finish um, with, uh, and I'd like to say thank you again to the Cocktail Hour Band, who is Steve Charles and uh, Hugh Thomas. And we're going to finish today's magazine with them playing out with Baker Street. <laughs> So easy, but you're trying, you're 
Happy, just one more year and then you'd be happy. But you're 